We're doing a series uh, on prayer at the moment. Um, Some of you who've been around the last few weeks might have already spotted that. Um, And I wonder how you'd respond if I asked you what your prayer life was like. I know that if someone was to ask me that, uh, my heart would sink a little bit. Um, How about you? Um, Some of us might be in some sort of daily pattern of prayer where we get up first thing and pray for a while or last thing at night or something. But I suspect that those of you who do would love to have that time a little bit more intentional, a bit more focused, um, a bit more regular maybe, a bit longer, who knows. Um, Some of you may not be in that habit. It may be that uh, your prayer life is more in terms of the occasional arrow prayer uh, to God. Uh, Pray, Lord, that this meeting that's just about to happen would go well. Pray that I'd I'd get that job uh, even the more mundane, pray that there'd be a seat for me on the train. Pray that, uh, that uh, they wouldn't screw up my latte this morning. Um, I'm being flippant, of course. But um, whoever we are, I suspect uh, that uh, our life of prayer isn't where we'd like it to be. Um, and the passage that we're going to look at this morning, which we'll come to in a few minutes, tells us uh, that we actually pray an awful lot more than we realize. Isn't that comforting? Um, the passage is going to talk about how uh, when our hearts groan at the suffering we see in the world, when our hearts groan in longing uh, to see uh, Christ return and restore uh, this world, that somehow God himself uh, turns those groans into prayers beyond words. Um, and he does that by his Holy Spirit who dwells in his children. Um, You might think of prayer in this sense as a bit of an iceberg. Um, Now, I can't remember. I I I, I thought it was nine-tenths, but I think it's more like seven-eighths or six-sevenths or something like that of an iceberg is hidden. It's underneath the surface. When you look at an iceberg, um, you imagine that you're seeing most of it, don't you? Certainly I do. Uh, But most of it, as I'm sure you're aware, is hidden beneath the surface. And when we talk about prayer, we generally talk about that, I don't know, 15% or whatever it is that pokes out at the top, the prayer that gets articulated. Um, And it's important that we talk about all of that prayer. But this morning is about the rest of the prayer that actually goes on unarticulated uh, through these uh, groanings. Uh, And uh, they are, in fact, as we will find out, the groans of God himself uh, within us groans uh, for his people and his creation. They are, they are the groans, uh, the, they're groans that get compared to people under slavery. One of the formative stories of the Bible, as, as you may know, is the story of the Exodus. Right back at the beginning of the story of, of the Bible, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and God hears their groans and rescues them out of slavery. And, and that motif um, just informs nearly everything else that happens in the Bible. It's, it's one of these really formative stories. These are the groans in our passage uh, of, of the slaves under, under the heavy labor of the Egyptians. Um, there are also groans, we'll see, of a woman in labor. Um, now, I think I, I recognize that I am a bloke, and so is Paul, who wrote this. And so you might well want to say, well, it's easy for you to say, Paul. Um, 
But of course, in that culture, there weren't nice thick walls and locked doors, and everyone would hear the sound of, of a woman in labor. This would have been one of the sounds of life. Uh, some, that's something I was somewhat protected from. Um, but these are all groans that if we were to try and put them into words, we'd be at a complete loss, but which somehow God turns into mediation for us in the midst of any of our suffering. Again, it's not that the 10% or 15% or whatever it is on top is unimportant, but this morning we're focusing on that 90% or so that is the overflow. That's a, that is a mixed metaphor, I recognize, but I'm sorry about that. Um, when you're doing, a, when you're doing a, a sermon series on a theme rather than a book, you find yourself jumping into the middle of a book. And in, in effect, you're jumping into the middle of a conversation. I'm sure you've been at a party when uh, you've, you've awkwardly walked up and tried to get involved in a conversation and realized to your shame and embarrassment that you've completely got the wrong end of the stick. I'm a fairly verbal person. That happens to me. Probably doesn't happen to you. Anyway, um, uh, we need to make sure we don't do that with this passage. So before we actually come to read it, I'm going to spend just a few minutes unpacking what's gone before in the story. The book of Romans is Paul's big unpacking of the gospel. It's his most majestic um, work uh, on what he understands as the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, that through Jesus Christ, we who were slaves have become royalty, we've become children of the king. And he talks about slavery in a number of different ways. He says that we're slaves because we've chosen uh, to follow our own desires rather than the God who is the giver of all good things. And we find out too late that actually uh, our, our desires are addictive. We become somehow enslaved to them. Um, we can't stop ourselves from living in those kinds of ways. And that's what Paul describes as slavery to sin. And it's something often we don't even notice uh, because it is such a normal part of life. He then says that um, having turned our back on God, uh, the, you know, the source of all life and joy, we find that our lives and the lives of the world around us, which we've been given to take care of, uh, are no longer just full of life, but they're now full also of death and decay from the moment we are born, we start to decay. It's one of the great upside-downnesses of our, of our life. Now, the whole of creation, every moment of creation, is characterized by this slow but inevitable march of death. Um, and that is what Paul describes as slavery to decay. And he talks about another very closely linked uh, form of slavery. Um, he says we're slaves uh, because... We try and fix things, we try and fix all of this by being good enough, good enough for the God that we've rejected, good enough to paper over the cracks uh, of our past. But we find that to be futile. We, don't, we can't even match up to our own standards, of our own conscience. Um, and that's what Paul describes as slavery to law. We, we might use the parlance of slavery to perfection might be a, a good way of interpreting that. So these are the slaveries that Paul has described early on in the book of Romans. And they're hard things to talk about. And I know that they really jar uh, with us, and they jar with uh, our 
how most people today view themselves. And they also jar because there's just something that feels very wrong about it. And this is one of the points that Paul is making, is that we're not made for slavery. We're made for royalty. Um, But that is the assessment that Paul gives of the human condition. And that is the background into which uh, he places the wonderful news of God's loving rescue. uh, An offer that is available to each of us, which he goes on to talk about uh, throughout the book. Um, That in the midst of our rejection of God and of its consequences, God comes to us as a father searching out for his lost children. That in Christ he lives the life that we wish we could live. And by living that, he defeats our slavery to sin. Um, That he dies the death that is coming to each of us in this decaying world. Um, And rises to life, breaking the power of sin. He defeats our slavery to death and decay. He rescues us from these slaveries and he adopts us as his children into his royal family and he gives us his Holy Spirit who confirms to us uh, that new identity and helps us and leads us as we try and live into that new identity. So you could say that we were slaves with a past we wished we forgot we could forget and no real sense of future. Um, And then in Christ, we become God's royal children. A past has been forgotten, and we have a future opened up to us, which is full of hope um, and joy. And as we come to Romans 8, we can see that sense of past and future at the beginning and at the end of the chapter. Um, So if you can grab that, the first couple of verses say this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There's that sense of there is no condemnation. The past has been forgotten. Fast forward right to the end of the chapter, verse 38, uh, towards the bottom of of the fourth paragraph. Verse 38. Uh, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's that sense of a certain future. A forgotten past, a certain assured future. But right now, we live in the tension of a sort of in-between because we still experience those slaveries. We we know that we're still not the people that we want to be. Uh, We know that the world around us is still broken uh, and decaying. So how do we live in this in-betweenness? And what's that got to do with prayer and, dare I say, icebergs? But let's have a a read of the middle few verses um, in in this chapter. chapter. Um, I should just say before we do that he talks about sonship Um, and of course we want to insert son and daughter because it is clear with Paul that he he includes us all equally. Um, The reason he talks about sonship is a reflection of the metaphorical uh, reference to sonship in first century, that sense of inheritance 
but actually uh, we only lost in this country, uh, you know, a uh, hundred years or so ago, that sense of it's the son who inherits. So the theme of sonship is very connected to inheritance. So we're all sons and daughters, but that's why the word appears as just son. I, I don't know if that's a helpful way of... Uh, I've probably drawn too much attention to it now, haven't I? Uh, we'll read from uh, verse 15, which is at the top of page 11.3.5. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is like Dad. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's an incredibly rich passage, and there's so much we could draw out of it, but we're just, I'm just going to draw out a few things about prayer that come up in, uh, this, in this passage. And, of course, they're all set in this sense that most of prayer is unseen, wordless, groaning of our hearts. So, firstly, um, prayer is groaning with an enslaved and suffering world. It is clear uh, that the world isn't as it should be. These uh, Viva prayer stations remind us of that. Uh, Small, vulnerable children being neglected and abused, uh, subjected to violence. The world is not as it should be. And our inarticulate groans uh, uh, at the suffering of those children or whatever else there is going on in the world are part of our response to it. And God turns that into prayer. Secondly, prayer is groaning under our own slavery. Yes, it's true. The passage makes very clear this sense that we are now God's children. We get to call him dad. Um, 
uh, and we're given that assurance by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we know that that transition out of slavery is incomplete. Uh, we know that we don't live the way that we'd like uh, to live. Um, and our inarticulate groans recognize our need uh, for God, our longing to be more like Jesus, to live into our identity as his brothers and sisters in the royal family of God. God turns those groans into prayer. Thirdly, though, prayer is also hearing God groan with us and for us. Just as Christ came into this broken world in his body, so the Holy Spirit comes to this world, into our brokenness, and dwells in us and among us. And there's much that is mysterious about that. And it's no wonder that he says, you know what, we just don't really know what to pray most of the time. But God's Spirit dwelling in us knows exactly uh, what to pray. And when God listens for our prayers, the first thing he hears is the groaning uh, of his own Spirit in us, setting the longings of our hearts into the context of his will. And fourthly and finally, prayer is longing uh, for freedom, for glory, uh, for new life. Uh, By faith, we are to know that those groans within us uh, well, the groans that we, of the world around us are the groans of childbirth. There is a latent uh, but profound joy in them, eager expectation of uh, new life. Uh, and when that new life arrives, free from decay, um, it will not take long for us to forget about those groans. Again, that, that, that sense of the children of Israel, we, we hear that story, we hear... In our own groans, the groans of Israelites who are heard by God, uh, who is compassionate and comes to rescue his people. In our groanings, uh, we trust that we are heard uh, by a God who will complete his story in us, his story of adoption, welcoming into new life, both for us and for the whole of creation. So let's just take a moment to be quiet. Maybe think about the world around us. What are the, what are the things that make your spirits groan? Is it uh, the migrant uh, crisis? Is it uh, the children uh, connected to Viva? Is there something going on in your own life or in the lives of your, uh, your friends and family? just that makes your spirit groan. Know that God turns those groans into prayer. Do you long uh, for the new heaven and new earth, for this world to be restored, to be freed from its bondage to decay? Do you long to be fully made uh, sons of the King? know that that groaning is turned by God into prayer.